You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Facebook discloses a cyber attack that affected 50 million users. A botnet is brute forcing credentials. Cyber criminals show signs of ramping up spoofed retail domains in preparation for holiday shopping. The U.S. Secret Service warns of ATM wiretapping. The Port of San Diego struggles with ransomware. The U.S. SEC finds a company for cyber deficiencies. Mr. Assange goes offline. Andrea Little Limbago from Endgame joins us. We discuss how cyber capabilities intersect with international statecraft and warfare. And some guy says he'll live stream his annihilation of a prominent Facebook page. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 28, 2018. Late this morning, Facebook disclosed that it had been the victim of a cyber attack. According to reports in the New York Times and elsewhere, it's thought that at least 50 million accounts were affected with user information exposed. According to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's own Facebook post, the company discovered the issue on Tuesday. Attackers stole access tokens that would in principle have allowed them to log in to roughly 50 million people's accounts. He says they don't yet know if any information exposed in the attack has been misused, but investigation continues. The social media company has patched the vulnerabilities the hackers used to get the tokens, and they've invalidated the stolen tokens. Thus, if you find yourself logged out of Facebook, that's why. You'll have to log back in to regain access to your account. The company has notified the affected users with a message that appears on top of their news feed, so look for it there when you get back in. Facebook has also taken down the service's View As feature, which is the one that contained the vulnerability the hackers exploited. View As is a tool that lets you see yourself, or at least your profile, as others see you. The company has taken the additional precaution of logging users out who used the View As feature since Tuesday. Guy Rosen, Facebook's vice president of product management, blogged that the vulnerability arose from, quote, the complex interaction of multiple issues in our code, end quote, which he says stemmed from changes they made to their video uploading feature in July of 2017. The investigation is still in progress, of course, so there's not even a preliminary attribution. Facebook has involved law enforcement, and they want their users to know that they regret the attack. The story is developing, and no doubt more will emerge over the weekend. For Pyx Trick, a botnet with some worm functionality, 
is brute-forcing ransomware through port 5900. It finds vulnerable remote desktop protocol and virtual networking computer servers and runs through a list of commonly used credentials to gain access. Researchers at Security Scorecard say the payload is typically a Grand Cab ransomware variant. The holiday season isn't here yet, but it's not too early to begin thinking about retail security. Security firm Venify is observing an unpleasant expanse of lookalike domains being registered with the apparent intent of duping online shoppers. When you do begin your holiday shopping, watch your typing and don't fall for an imposter's site. The U.S. Secret Service is warning banks that there's an increase in ATM wiretapping attacks that involve drilling a small hole in an ATM, inserting the skimmer, often with an endoscope, and then covering the hole, often with a little sticker that has the bank's logo on it. If you've got an ATM in your mom-and-pop shop, give it a once-over and pay attention to any warnings from the bank. The Port of San Diego continues to struggle with a ransomware infestation in its business systems. It's now been running for several days and seems unusually resistant to remediation. The business systems affected seem to be non-core and not crucial to port operations, things like parking access, parking permits, public records requests, business document filings, and so on. The Port of San Diego surely includes a cargo and cruise ship handling port proper, but its remit also extends to the city's waterfront parks, shops, museums, convention center, and marinas. It's 34 miles of coastline, that's 55 kilometers for our international listeners, and the activities the port's responsible for pretty much cover the waterfront. In the first case of its kind, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is bringing an enforcement action against VOIA financial advisors for poor cybersecurity. Acting against a company for deficient cybersecurity, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has obtained an agreement from VOIA financial advisors to pay $1 million in fines over violations of the safeguards rule and the identity theft red flags rule. The SEC says this is its first enforcement action under the red flags rule. After receiving some tough love from Ecuador's London embassy, Julian Assange has stepped down as the leader of WikiLeaks. Spokesperson Kristin Raffenson will take over. Mr. Assange is still in the embassy, but Ecuador's taken away his Internet access. Ecuador's President Moreno is thought to regard Mr. Assange as an embarrassment held over from his predecessor's administration. The embassy has been looking for ways of encouraging Mr. Assange to move on, but the situation still seems to be a failure to launch. And finally, in a development we think is unconnected with Facebook's other issues, a freelance hacker in Taiwan named Shang Xiong says he's going to obliterate Mark Zuckerberg's Facebook page this weekend and that he'll be live-streaming the hack. He says he's a white hat, and he may well be, but on the other hand, the word on the street is that he does seem to get himself sued from time to time. Stream if you dare, voyeurs of low tastes, but we'll be watching reruns of The Gong Show instead. It's a more elevated pastime. And that Chuck Barris was one dangerous mind. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Uh, you sent over an interesting article here about uh, some Bluetooth vulnerabilities that uh, the researchers have labeled severe. Uh, what's going on here? This was a vulnerability that researchers found in the Bluetooth pairing protocol. So the pairing protocol, uh, as many listeners might know, is what's used when you want to pair two Bluetooth devices. Uh, say, for example, your cell phone uh, with the communication system in your car. And what the researchers so showed was that the underlying cryptographic protocol that was used to set up a secure pairing between two devices was actually vulnerable to an attack that would potentially allow an attacker to uh, either impersonate one of those devices or potentially to eavesdrop on further communications between them. The Bluetooth coupling used uh, a, a mathematical concept called ECC, that's elliptic curve cryptography. What can you tell us about that? It was a very interesting attack, actually. Uh, although looking at the protocol uh, as a cryptographer myself, it's the sort of attack that when you see the protocol, you almost immediately realize that the protocol was designed in a, in a really a silly way hmm. to enable that attack. Uh, fundamentally, what's going on here is that the protocol was using what's called elliptic curve cryptography. And without getting into the details of that, let, let me just kind of say at a high level that this involves uh, sending back and forth um, strings representing points on some mathematical curve. Mm -hmm. And and even if you don't understand any of that, what, what, what it comes down to, what the attack boils down to, is that essentially half of, the, half of that string was signed and the other half was not. Okay. And the designers of the protocol basically thought that by signing half the string, it would be enough to secure the protocol. And what the researchers uh, showed was that by cutting corners like that, they were able to manipulate the second half of the string and thereby carry out the attack. Hmm. So I think in the end, you know, what it really point, points out to is uh, the fact that you need to have security protocols analyzed by experts in the field. And uh, in the best case scenario, you want to get your protocols validated and proven secure. And I think trying to analyze this protocol in a, in a structured way and trying to prove security would have immediately identified that signing only half the string was not sufficient. 
Now, but it strikes me that, I mean, obviously, you know, Bluetooth is not some uh, some fringe bit of technology. Uh, the, the folks who, who are in charge of validating these sorts of things, surely they would have had somebody look at this before it was uh, sent out and, and made a standard, right? Can I say no comment? <laughs> uh, you know, all I can say is that the flaw was there, and it's a pretty basic flaw. It's the kind of thing that I would cover in, in a graduate uh, cryptography class. Really? So I don't know who looked at it, who didn't look at it. I think one of the things going on here is that perhaps people thought uh, that because of the pairing protocol and because of Bluetooth in general is something that's carried out between two devices in close proximity, it's a little bit more difficult in practice to carry out the attack. You would need somebody... Uh, you would need the attacker to basically be within close physical proximity of the honest users, and presumably they might be detected. So the practical uh, impact of this is unclear. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, the major, major manufacturers have been alerted, and, and uh, they've done some patching and, and updates and so forth. So, so they're on it. We hope so, and, I hope that, and I'm sure it's something that's also easy to fix. And so I'm sure that the next uh, versions of the protocol will address this vulnerability. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. Returning once again as our guest today, we welcome Andrea Little-Limbago. She's chief social scientist at Endgame, working at the intersection of global policy and cybersecurity. Our conversation today centers on how cyber capabilities affect international statecraft and warfare, the need to establish norms in cyber conflict, and how technical and policy people can do a better job of supporting each other's efforts. As someone who has more of a political science background but spends my time very much in information security and I work at a cybersecurity company, the conversations are really quite different about the impact and the relationship between various aspects of you know, digital statecraft, digital, the, you know, digital capabilities, um, and, and warfare and conflict. On the one hand, I'm seeing very much so on the information security, and more from the more the technology folks, uh, the, the concern and the, and the right concern of the militarization of the internet and how, you know, how we're framing things and how um, you know, increasingly we're seeing more and more of the full range and full spectrum of, of attacks as opposed to the more utopian vision of what the internet can and, and hopefully in one day will do as far as being a democratizing force, helps civil liberties, those kind of things. And so those are very, very important conversations. But when you switch over to more the political science conflict studies and warfare experts and policy folks, the discussion more so is looking at how the various range of cyber capabilities, and again, they'll, they'll, they'll focus more, they'll, they'll call it all cyber. Um, so even some of the terminology is a little different. Hmm. They'll focus on how cyber is impacting warfare already and evolving really the fundamental and core components of, of warfare, such as even you know, the notions of power. How is power shifting um, and how is the Internet enabling really completely new and distinct constructs of how we think about power during warfare? So um, it's a really different conversation that's more so looking at you know, how it basically it's taking it as an assumed, and again, I think that's also the right way to look at it, that various aspects of 
you know, digital integration and digital capabilities are going to be are already serving as a disruptor into warfare. But the interesting thing on that even is that, you know, within that community, it's more it's still it's, it's presented more so as a future scenario, as you know, how's, how you know, how may it one day impact warfare? Um, and you know, doing some of my research, is, you look back at it, it's really been over a decade now since various aspects of digital capabilities have already been influencing and integrated within warfare. And so I think that's something that is a little underappreciated and needs to be you know, better understood. So again, so we can prepare both for you know, limiting the militarization of the internet as best we could through, can through norms and other forms of agreements on, that, on one end, but also you know, making sure that we're prepared and worked for what to expect. Now, one thing that, that I've noticed, um, and, and I think noted as well, is that there seems to be this resistance to drawing any clear lines when it comes to, as you say, norms, uh, when it comes to cyber conflict. It seems like world leaders are, are reticent to say, if you cross this line, then that is warfare. Do you think that's an accurate uh, uh, description of what we're seeing? I do. And I think there have been some efforts in the, at the United Nations uh, group of governmental experts for a while tried pushing forth norms uh, along those lines. And that you know, fell apart last year as far as not even both in warfare and as far as what's off limits for targets, what's off limits for kinds of behavior, which still also helps establish some of the fundamentals, at least in peacetime. Um, you know, there have been declarations that you know, the, the um, laws of armed conflict apply also to the cyber domain. That you know, still seems a little bit somewhat nebulous as far as whether everyone agrees to that. Uh, there's a Talon manual that defines things a little bit more, um, but again, it's more more guidance than you know, a formal regulation or law. So there are these there are these attempts at it in certain areas, but even a lot of those are very vague, especially if you look at like in NATO, uh, Article 5 has now has a cyber attack as part of it, so a cyber attack on one is viewed as attack on all. But it still fails to define really what kind of cyber attack, what kind of effects might it have, would be the would be the example that you know, instigates the, the collective security of the alliance. And so it still remains very, uh, I think states and leaders are very hesitant to really define that red line for many, I think for many reasons. One is, you know, that means other countries or other actors will push up as far as and as close as possible to that line without, you know, knowing that they would, may not have any repercussions for it. And then if you do have that red line, as we've seen this, you know, over and over again, just in traditional warfare, uh, it then leads to a lot of uh, domestic costs for leaders if it turns out that red lines cross and it's not a popular war. So there, there are a lot of, you know, it's much more nuanced um, than just doing a red line or not. But you know, at the same time, we definitely need a lot more um, structured uh, approaches and various kinds of policy advances to help us evolve and understand when when these kinds of acts are should be treated and responded to with various kinds of uh, statecraft, anything from you know, the range of non-kinetic responses from the sanctions and persona non grata, um, indictments that we've been seeing a lot lately, all the way to when it should be ha- when it should trigger a militarized response. What do you wish that the folks on the tech side understood better? What what uh, messages do do you think uh, they need to know? Yeah, and that's great. And, you know, and, I, and I wish I had all the answers to that, but you probably and I, actually the interesting thing about this, I think some of it is starting to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of when I, I kind of look at the breaking point or the sort of the inflection point of our elections in 2016, if you look at prior to that, really very few, there's, it was almost, people were accusing more of the national security folks of, of, of being alarmist in many of these areas. But with the election uh, interference, I think that has started changing some folks um, to understand really the national security threats that are out there. But that would be, that really the, the overarching one is that, actually I probably have two different areas. One, one is to, to broaden our expand, to expand our understanding of, of how we even view about, view or define cyber or security or 
information security. Mm-hmm. And this is actually a point that Alex Damos made in a recent interview as well. We really need to expand to think about the full range of ways that you know information and various kinds of digital capabilities can be used by by attackers, by adversaries. And so, so for so long within InfoSec, we focus really on the network compromises, the you know the, the spear phishing, malware, so forth, and again, which is understandable, and that's you know that absolutely should remain a core focus. But when you look into the you know the, the broader realm of of cyber statecraft, if you want to call it that, you know, you've got all the, the propaganda and disinformation, uh, data manipulation, all those kind of things. And so it does get back a little bit into the the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of data. All that still is very very true. But when you think about it broader than just network compromises, if we can think about it as that full spectrum, I think that really impacts how we will start to think about how to defend against it, but also how the people with the tech backgrounds and tech capabilities, what they can contribute to fighting that full um, spectrum of, of attacks as well. Increasingly, we're seeing in different examples, you know, it's not just going to be a, a hat, you know, a, a network compromise. In addition to that, the example that I, I like to give a lot is um, in Qatar, when, when the, basically there's the height of the tensions in Qatar, which there currently still is a boycott. But there was a, a there was a hack of the the me, of a state media site in Qatar, and then from there there was posting of disinformation on that media site, and then that disinformation was spread via you know a bit Twitter bots, and there was a, basically a, a you know bot armies um, spreading the disinformation, and that's kind of the, the adversary playbook that I that I talk about that I see occurring more and more hmm. is the integration of the disinformation with the hack with the bots and the automation, and so that's what we you know we need to start thinking about how can we defend about those against those areas as opposed to thinking about them all as stovepiped um, because the adversaries don't, they think about it as a full, as, as full spectrum information security, you know, attempts for information control. And so if we're not understanding how they're viewing it and what kind of strategies they're using, it makes it really hard for us to defend against that. And that's, that'd be one area is just really, you know, focusing on those. And then just, you know, again, another area I would, I would, I just would love to get more and more of the people with more tech backgrounds, just you know, talking to policy folks and vice versa. Um, it goes both ways. So even just the more opportunities that we can have, you know, I, like next year, there might be a law and policy village at DEF CON. I think that'd be a great thing. I hope that happens. Hmm. The foot soldiers doing the work for policy, you know, within the military, within the government, um, within some of academic, uh, academia. In talking to them, there still is plenty of, cl- of collaboration going on, more at lower levels of government and um, hmm. lower levels within the military. And so that actually made me, it was, it was, it was heartening actually to hear a lot of those examples that are, that you know, honestly just aren't making you know, it's not sensational right so it's not going to make the press that oh you know, these two groups are co- you know, coordinating and, and collaborating very well um, that's just not going to make the news so there still is plenty of collaboration still going on and so that's the nice thing you know, our democratic institutions are strong and our alliances are very strong mm-hmm. and so I, I'm hopeful that they can withstand some of the stress that's going on at the you know, national leadership levels uh, you know, across the world so we'll see which isn't to say that we shouldn't be concerned but something that, you know, I'm hopeful that we're resilient enough to withstand it. Yeah. Interesting times, right? It is indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> That's Andrea Little Limbago from Endgame. There's an extended version of our interview over on our Patreon page. We'll have a link to it in the show notes for today's episode. Do check it out. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. 
The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.